Well, good evening. My name is Mike, and uh, at Northwood Young Adults, we believe in having open doors and open hearts. And so I hope that when you walked in tonight that you felt comfortable and invited. And I also hope that you came with an open heart because you are wanted and welcomed here. So we're glad you're here. You guys feeling good tonight? Feeling, feeling good, right? Awesome. Well, uh, tonight we're continuing our series, The Eye in Revival. But we're looking at the part that you and I play in seeing revival in the world around us. And uh, over the last two weeks, we've talked about how as Christians, we can be compared a lot of times to sticks of dynamite, where we have all the elements necessary to explode, but without the flame of God, without the Spirit of God, we stay dormant, right? We just kind of sit in a corner and don't do anything. Uh, And we talked last week about how we can overcome the excuses of being busy, broke, and bothered. And that was a fun one, if you ask me. now, I talked about this last week as well, but it, it bears repeating, that if you've ever had those thoughts of, man, God can't use me, or there's no way I'm ready to be used by God, I want you to think about it this way, that when Jesus came to earth and it became time for him to start his ministry and uh, start his, what he was really called to do on earth, when he looked around and cho- chose people to, to help him start his movement on earth, who did he choose? He looked around and chose 12 young adults, people who were likely in their 20s, to do so. And if you're still not convinced by that, three out of the four great awakenings in our country's history were led by people in their 20s. And we are due for another one of those revivals, and we will likely see it in our lifetime. And the question is this, will you play a part in it? And so tonight we're going to look at a story from John chapter 4, where we see Jesus have a life-changing conversation with this sinful woman. And we'll see that he used her not just despite of her sin, but also because of her sin to change her world. So if you would pray with me, and then we'll jump into this. God, I thank you so much for tonight. God, I thank you for an incredible time of worship. And God, as that continues, God, I pray you would speak to us through your word. God, I thank you for bringing us here tonight. And every person in here is a a soul and a story, and that you have something for them tonight. So God, I pray that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you, and we walk out of here closer to you than than when we walked in, God. So we trust you with tonight. In Jesus' name, we all say it together. Amen. Awesome. Well, if you would, go ahead and turn to John chapter 4. And uh, while you're turning to John 4, I'll give you some context. By the time we get to John 4, Jesus has just begun his ministry. So it's early on in that time of his life. uh, But he has already been shaking things up in the religious realm. And uh, he'll continue to do so in this story in John 4. So this is John 4, 1 through 6. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Uh, and that's about noon, if you look, if you have a footnote in your Bible. So we see the stage get set here. Okay, so the Pharisees, who are the, the overly religious people, right? I like to call them the clipboard guys, right? They go around with the clipboard, and they're like, oh, infraction, right? I'm going to write you up and, uh, and call you out on your mistake. That's who these people were. They were the overly religious people, and, uh, and they, they weren't fans uh, of the ministry and mission of Jesus. And they got upset 
that Jesus was baptizing people. And they had heard about Jesus doing this. And they also knew that John the Baptist was doing this, and they didn't like him. And so they're like, man, this guy, Jesus is baptizing more than John the Baptist, and we already don't like John the Baptist, so we definitely don't like this, this Jesus guy. Uh, but it turned out that Actually, what's interesting in verse 2 that uh, the Apostle John, who wrote this book of the Bible, he made sure to mention that Jesus himself didn't baptize anyone, but his disciples did it. And so, which is interesting, that Jesus didn't physically baptize people, but instead let his disciples do it. And nobody really knows why, uh, but it's possible that Jesus didn't want uh, somebody to feel more significant than somebody else, right? Like, oh, well, Peter baptized you, but... I got baptized by Jesus, right? He didn't want people thinking that, and so maybe that's why, but nobody really knows for sure. But because of the Pharisees being upset by this, Jesus leaves, and he heads for Galilee. And to get to Galilee, you have to go through Samaria. And there is significance in that, because the Jewish people did not like Samaria, okay? So Jews and Samaritans were like oil and water, okay? Dogs and cats, Chick-fil-A, Popeyes, all right? They did not like one another, even to the point where usually if a Jew had to pass through Samaria to get to wherever they needed to be, they would go an alternate route to avoid it, even if that meant lengthening the trip by days. Well, Jesus did not avoid it. So he arrives in Samaria where Jews never go, and he arrives in this town in Samaria where Jacob's well is located. And we don't have time to get into that too much, but just know that Jacob's well was of great importance in the Old Testament. And so this was kind of like a sacred place. It was a place that was held in, in, in high esteem. Uh, and if you want to read about it, you can do so in uh, Genesis 29. Does anyone to call me out on the G word there, Genesis? Jar. All right. All right. <laughs> uh, so now that the stage is set, let's read it and see what happens. This is John 4, 7 through 15. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. A Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, like we talked about. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that, he, that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So we see that Jesus is here at Jacob's well, and this woman arrives to fill up her jar of water. And it's just Jesus there. It's Jesus and the woman. The disciples have left to get some food. And so Jesus speaks up, and he says, give me a drink. And she seems to be kind of taken back by, the, by this, by the fact that a Jew was even acknowledging her presence. And so she asks him, why in the world, as a Jewish man, are you asking me, a Samaritan woman, for something to drink? And he responds and says, well... Actually, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for something to drink, asking me for some water, and I would have given you living water. To which she says, yeah, right, you've got nothing to put it in. You don't have a jar. You're not carrying a jar around. And by the way, do you think you're better than Jacob, who is like a father of our faith? He's the one who put this well here. And here we see Jesus connect the dots. He says, everyone who drinks from this well 
will become thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give will never thirst again, and it will lead to eternal life. And so Jesus, he paints this dichotomy between normal water and living water, the temporary and the eternal. And he asks her, which would you rather have? Do you want your jar filled with something temporary, temporarily satisfying? Or do you want something that is eternally satisfying? You can almost see it in her response, right? And she, she's like, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of coming to this well, right? This, this is hard work. This, this jar is heavy. I'm, I'm tired of carrying around this, this jar back and forth every day. But I do it because I'm thirsty, and so please show me how to never thirst again. And so I want to ask you tonight to, to bring you into the story. What are you filling your jar with? Do, do you keep returning to a source of temporary fulfillment, but to a source of eternal fulfillment. I just read this book called Digital Minimalism, and the author talked a lot about the, the addictive nature of certain apps on your phone, and so uh, specifically social media apps, and how the designers of those apps, they've designed them to intentionally exploit vulnerabilities in our brain, and how they create behavioral addictions, not substance addictions, but behavioral addiction. So if you need an example of this, think gambling, okay? It's a sensation similar to that of rolling the dice, pulling the slot machine handle, that every time you post something on social media because you want to see what kind of feedback you're going to get that time, right, when you post something, whether that be likes, comments, retweets, etc., right? And so just think, if you want to think about it this way, think about the refreshing motion on Twitter or Instagram. It's, it's designed to resemble pulling the slot machine handle, okay? If you ever do this a couple times in a row on uh, Instagram, you'll see how it works. That when, you, when you refresh it, something, uh, you're, you know, something's going to change on your screen. You'll get a, a fresh new thread of post, or your stories up top will rearrange. That's because it's designed to keep you there as long as possible. And, that's, and, you, and you always wonder, why is it not in chronological order? That's why, right? It's the algorithms. That's how they keep you on it. It's how they make their money. Their intention is to fill your jar with their app. And that's just an example. Social media is just an example of many different things that will try to fill your jar. But just as a gambling addict returns to the casino, right, just as a social media addict returns to the app, just as this woman returned to her well, we oftentimes and a lot of times will return to the place, wherever it may be, that we find temporary satisfaction. One of the ways the, the author of the book suggested to break this habit is to step away but to fill that, that time, that gap with something else, which isn't groundbreaking, right? I mean, we know that. He's not saying to take a break from social media and stare at a wall, right? And just as Jesus was not telling this woman to die of thirst, we know this, right? If you've ever been on a diet, you don't, hopefully, you shouldn't starve yourself. You just replace what you've been eating with something healthier. So Jesus was not telling this woman to go through life empty. He was telling her to be careful with what she was filling herself with because your jar is going to be filled either way. But it's up to us to choose what we're filling it with, something temporary or something eternal. Let's keep reading. This is verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So things get a little real here, right? So Jesus tells this woman to go get her husband and bring him here. To which she responds, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you know what? You're right. 
You've had five husbands, and the one that you're living with, and the man that you're living with right now isn't even one of them. And that probably stung a little bit, right? So we see Jesus kind of pull the rug out from underneath this woman. He exposes her brokenness. He exposes her sin, which does in turn take this conversation to another level, right? He exposes this gaping character void in this woman, in this woman's life. It's like he opened the one door she didn't want him going in, right? Like when you go to the dentist and they ask if you've been flossing. Or when you were a kid and your mom and dad asked if you've done your homework, right? It's like, okay, that's the one thing I was hoping you wouldn't ask me, right? Like, we just had to go there, didn't we? But Jesus doesn't do this to condemn us. He does this to show our need for him. He doesn't expose brokenness that he doesn't intend to redeem. Let's keep reading, verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on the mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So she responds and says, okay, I get it. You know all about my life. You must be a prophet. Well, Samaritans worship here. And you say Jews worship over here. And so can you tell me which one it is? I'm not sure, but I'm guessing she must have thought Jesus was lost. Or Jesus was confused, right? You're a Jewish prophet. You don't worship here. And so why are you here? And he then explains to her that soon it wouldn't matter where you worship. It wouldn't matter if you were a Jew or or a Samaritan, that you would worship God in spirit and truth. And she's like, yeah, I get that. I, I know the Messiah is coming, and that's what he's going to do. To which Jesus says, I am the Messiah. And there's so much in this story, but here's what I want us to see in this. It is clear that this woman had a ton of knowledge about God. And she had a ton of knowledge about the traditions of her faith, right? Earlier, she knew the significance of Jacob's well, right? Now she knows where the Jews worship and where the Samaritans worship, and she knows the difference between the two. And now she says, oh yeah, I know about the Messiah. I know what he's going to come and do. He's going to tell us all of these things. And so she's got all of this head knowledge, yet She has been married five times, and the man that she's living with, she's not married to. And so she's living her life contrary to the word of God, living in sin, living in brokenness. And so for whatever reason, the knowledge that she had in her head had not made its way to her heart. What she knew had not yet made its way into her life. And so can the same be said about us? If your faith hasn't changed the way you live your life, you don't have faith. You have information. As we talk about revival and changing the world around us, information about God is not going to do the job. You know how I know? When was the last time a textbook took your breath away? When was the last time a textbook took your breath away? We don't need just information about God. We need God. It's taking that information and putting it into practice. It's putting the key into the ignition of the car and starting it and driving it. It'd be pretty strange, right, if a mechanic couldn't drive. I was talking to Abijah. He was having car troubles the other day. I've had car troubles recently. Wouldn't that be, be kind of 
kind of weird if a mechanic couldn't drive, knew all the ins and outs of a car, but never once put it on the road? If we stay content with just knowing things about God and never acting on that information, then we will be the same as this woman was, someone who knew all of the right answers, but had not seen them make its way into our life. Let's keep reading. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see, what the field, see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. As we see, the disciples come back, and they're surprised that Jesus is talking to a woman, because in that time, it would have been inappropriate in that setting to be talking to a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman. But they were too afraid to say anything. I probably would have been too, and not that it would have mattered, right? Jesus obviously didn't care too much about the customs, and we see that throughout his entire life on earth. But what we see is this woman leaving her water jar and running into town and telling everybody about Jesus. And I love the detail that she left her water jar behind. She left what she had once filled with her temporary, temporarily satisf- or temporary satisfaction, that one thing she left behind. Why? Because she had just been filled with living water. Right? And, then, and the disciples return, and, and they, they ask Jesus to eat, and he refuses, and he, and he tells them, hey, no, I'm, I'm, I'm instead filled by you know, doing my mission here on earth. And then Jesus goes into this explanation of how the harvest of souls was imminent. And that was a result of the work put in by all of the past generations. You know, he's telling his disciples, you're going to reap what, what everyone else, what someone else before you has, has, has sown. The souls that have been prayed for in the past, you're going to see those souls get saved. In other words, it's your turn to do your part. And as time has gone on, this has stayed true. You know, every generation of Jesus followers, they, they pray for the salvation of souls. Sometimes they see it in large quantities. Sometimes they don't. But each generation is responsible for either laying the foundation for revival or actually seeing that revival and experiencing it. And now, you know, it's, it's 2020. I, I look at, at myself as a 26-year-old. I look at all of you as young adults. And, man, it is so evident. It is our turn. Right, we are no longer at the kids' table. Right, it is time for this generation, this room of young adults, to finally step up and take ownership of the time and history that we've been given. Right, and we're entering into someone else's labor, right? The generation before who fought, who prayed, who, who ran their race. And now it's time for us to stop looking at those who are older and instead look in the mirror and decide it's time for us to start carrying the mantle. Will you do so? Let's finish out the story and see how it ends. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. As we see that many of the Samaritans came to faith in Christ because of what the woman had said, that he told me all that I ever did, which I love that. Jesus exposing her sin, exposing her brokenness is what led to her believing in him. Which is interesting because usually we're afraid for Jesus to see our sin, right? But in reality, when we have an accurate view of our sin, is when we have an accurate view of the the grace of Jesus. It's when we see the grace of Jesus the clearest. And this woman, she likely had a reputation around town. And so when she was the one that came running, right, and said, this man might be the Messiah, he just told me about all of my problems, People took her seriously. People took her seriously because in what other circumstance would you be so excited to shout about your brokenness and shout about your deepest, darkest sins? Why else would you broadcast your brokenness unless you had just met the one who was going to forgive it? And then after Jesus stayed there two days, the people told her, now we believe not just because you told us, not just because we have information, but because we've experienced it. We've seen it for ourselves. We've seen this is indeed the Savior of the world. This woman started revival in her town because she got real about her sin, but then got real about Jesus. It was a moment where where for her, all of her head knowledge came to life. It, It was not just cold facts anymore, but real truth that was now alive. I want to leave you with this tonight. And as uncomfortable as this may be, just as Jesus said to that woman, I know your past mistakes. I know the one you're living in right now. I know your sin. He looks at us and he says the same thing. I know your mistakes. I know know your failures. I know the things that you think about. I know your weaknesses. I, I know the deepest and darkest things about you. I know your sin. I see your brokenness. But I do not condemn you. Jesus pulls the rug out from underneath us. He opens that one door. He asks that one question, not to rub salt in the wound, but to redeem it and restore it and heal it. When Jesus spoke with this woman, he knew that she was the reason he would soon go to the cross. He knew that we were the reason he would soon go to the cross, and yet he still chose to do so. So that now our our brokenness is no longer an excuse. Our brokenness is no longer a disqualifier, but instead can be used as a testimony to the goodness and grace of God. That no matter how many times we've tried to fill our jar with something different than him, something other than him, that no matter how many times we've returned to that source of temporary fulfillment, we have never reached a point where he cannot redeem us and bring us right back and fill our jar with living water to empower us to reach this generation, to reach our world for his name. And so will you play your part? Will you focus on the I in revival? Will you do what it takes to change your world? Your sin doesn't disqualify you because you weren't the one to qualify yourself to begin with. So what excuse is left? Put your faith in Christ. Change your world. If you would go ahead and stand, pray with me. God, I thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for this story of this Samaritan woman 
who knew a lot about you, but what she knew about you hadn't made its way into her life. God, we may have come here tonight and had a lot of knowledge about you. God, I pray that knowledge would come to life tonight. That we wouldn't be like mechanics who don't know how to drive. That we wouldn't look to textbooks to take our breath away, but God, instead we would look to you. God, that your, your spirit would fill this place. You would, you would, your spirit would fill our hearts. God, that we would decrease so that you would increase. That you would draw near to us as we draw near to you. God, you would, you would bring us to life. That we would not be like sticks of dynamite just sitting in the corner and dormant, not doing anything. But God, instead, God, we welcome your flame. Because God, we do pray for revival in this generation. And God, I pray it starts right here. I pray it starts in us, through us in this ministry, in this city, in our schools, in our workplaces. And I thank you for the blood of your son that tells us that, that no sin has disqualified us. No brokenness has, has put us away too far. But instead, God, your grace has welcomed us into your presence. And by your grace, you want to use us to change our world. So God, I pray as we leave here tonight, your spirit would fill us. God, that you would give us boldness. You would give us strength. We would walk out of here. And try to display your love. Try to display your grace and your truth to the people we interact with. And maybe find this world a little different than we found it. In Jesus' name, amen.